Good morning. It's good to have you here. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 6 down to chapter 3 and verse 4 in our time together. Have you ever felt deep disappointment over somebody you love and know who never reaches their potential? Perhaps it's a family member. Perhaps it's a friend. We all kind of worry about it with our kids, don't we? You, just, you, you want your children just to grow up and become all that they can be for God. But I, I've been around long enough that I've had contact with enough, enough people where I've said, sometimes it happens in the academic arena where I'll look at somebody and say, that kid is brilliant. And they end up working in Walmart for the rest of their life. And if you work in Walmart, that's fine. I don't, I'm not attacking Walmart. But, but you, you know, I just think to myself like, okay. And, and, and I, I've known some young people who are phenomenal athletes. Not a lot of discipline, but incredible raw ability. And they never go anywhere when they really could have. Happens professionally, academically, athletically, in just all kinds of arenas. And you know the, the hurt you feel when you see somebody, and perhaps it's a child or a loved one, you go like, man, that's disappointing. Isn't it? When we come to this passage, you will feel that same kind of disappointment with the Apostle Paul. N not over the Corinthians' academic acumen or athletic ability or anything like that. But coming short spiritually. And, and, and as we walk through their story, perhaps you'll see your story a little bit too at some level. What's fascinating to me in this passage, and so it, even in designing it, it was a bit of a challenge for me, there are not any commands in this entire section that I'm preaching on. Paul is just kind of sharing his heart of what he sees. And I want you to watch because he's going to start by talking about, really, we've sang, sang about it today. He's going to start by just talking about the glorious wonder of the gospel. And, and very different ways in which people respond. And then how all of that is impacted. And, and, and for him, frustrated by the way that the Corinthians respond to all of that. So I want to walk through that with you. We're, we're, he's going to talk about the gospel, responses to the gospel... And then wonder why the Corinthians are where they are. And here's my point to you. Is it possible for you and I to talk about the wonders of the gospel and understand how people respond and yet still find it ourselves just kind of nominally doing our own thing? So come with me to the text. 
Notice what he does. He's going to, Paul's going to start by, he's going to say, we speak God's wise gospel to the spiritually mature in verses 6 to 13. Uh, he, he's just got, got done saying that when he comes and preaches the gospel to people, what's most important is they understand the clarity of the message itself. He doesn't attach to it all kinds of human interest stories which will just wow you. He doesn't try to manipulate you with clever terms. and No, 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 no. no. He says, man, it's the gospel and you got to have it down. And he says, it's not viewed as wise often by the world around us. And that leads him right into verse 6. Because what he says, regardless of how the world thinks, the gospel is the greatest example of wisdom that the world has ever seen. Because it's the only thing that can put us in, in the right relationship with God and transform the way we live. Look at what he says in verse 6. I'm reading from the ESV. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, this is what God has prepared for those who love him. So he's going to start by saying, God's wise, and I have to tell you folks, you may be looking up here and say, man, Finkbinder, that's a lot of words in that sentence. And all I can say is, it's not the half of what I could have done. Because, I mean, I'm reading through this passage, and I'm like, I, and we, we, you know this as preachers, you're thinking like, what do I summarize and just kind of cut out? Because this passage is dense with all kinds of great stuff. So I, I'm trying to simplify as much as I can, but it's good stuff. God's wise and glorious gospel was designed by our sovereign God in eternity past, hidden from ignorant humanity and hidden from ignorant humanity in the present. God says this. Paul says, you may wonder why the world looks at the gospel and some people say, man, that is really, really foolish. It's not because the gospel is foolish. It's because they have the wrong set of glasses. Everybody comes to life with a set of glasses, don't they? And, and we often call it a world view. It's the way you view the world around you. And so it's easy for the world to look at the gospel and say, that is really dumb. Why does somebody have to die? Why is sin really as bad as it is? What's going on? They ask all kinds of questions. But Paul says, those who are believers, those who are mature, those who have really thought this thing through, they have another set of glasses. And when they come to this, what they see is, 
man, God is wise. Well, this gospel, one of the things you find about it is that it's, it's, it was veiled in the past. So much so that when you read your Old Testament, did you ever read your Old Testament and go like, how do you put all that stuff together? If all you had was the Old Testament, you'd read along and you'd read things like, a king is coming who's going to destroy all the enemies of God and set up a kingdom. You go like, okay, I got that one. And then you're going to read other passages that are going to say, uh, yeah, and there's going to be a suffering Messiah who's going to die. And you're like, okay, like, all right, whatever. And, and there's all these different things and you're reading and going like, how in the world are you ever going to put that together? And one of the reasons God has given it to us in the way that he did is so that you could never fully understand it until Jesus was actually here and looking back and explaining it to us. And it's called a mystery. Not because it's not there, just because when you're going through it, you're going like, I don't know how to put all these pieces together into the puzzle. But when Christ comes on the scene, you go like, oh, that's how that whole thing comes together. It's a mystery. And, and God, this text says God did it that way because he wanted mankind to know you could never find it on your own. In the way that God designed it, and because out of pride, you don't want to have to admit that you need it anyway. And so to the lost world around us, the greatest of all rulers in their day didn't get it. Why? Because they weren't smart? No, they were brilliant. They had the wrong glasses. And they couldn't see that this was the wisdom of God. And, and it wasn't like God kind of came up with it. Like sometimes, you, could, you ever get the idea like when you read the, the Bible and you say like, okay, man just fell into sin. God must be in panic mode thinking, now what am I going to do? Was God ever in panic mode? No, this text tells us from eternity past, God had it all figured out. Turning pissed, he knew exactly what he was going to do. And he was going to frame it in such a way that you won't fully understand it until the fulfillment actually comes. And then when you look back, you go like, oh, it makes a whole lot of sense. But it would only make sense to those who had the right kind of glasses on. Because it's possible for very brilliant people to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, I don't buy it. I don't need it. I can do it on my own. I'm a good person. I'm self-sufficient. I'm all kinds of things. And this text gives us no room for those things, folks. So he unpacks this. And here's one of the other things I love. Look at, look at, look at um, the end of verse 7. This is really good. So we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, which God decreed before the ages for, for whose glory? What does your text say? For our glory? And you read down a little bit farther in verse 8 about the fact that they have crucified the Lord of glory. And in verse 9, nobody was able to put this all together because of their sinfulness and their limitations. What they couldn't even imagine it. What God has prepared for those who loved him. You know what the beauty of this is? Paul says, Everybody wants their life to make sense, don't they? And the only thing that makes sense for people will ultimately be the gospel. 
And when they come to submit to it, they will find out in progressive ways, both in this life and in the life to come, the magnitude of what God has prepared for us. More than we can imagine. You mean, like, I'm secure forever? Yeah, but I still sin. I know, but it's all covered because of Christ. Do you mean God has brought me near and he calls me his son now? Yup, you've been adopted, Finkbeiner. Do you mean that I'm so united to Christ that I can be called his fellow heir in Romans 8? Yup, and that I will share in his glory in eternity? Yup. Wow. And folks, I can say this. We don't know the half of it. Because Paul says in Ephesians 2, in ages to come throughout glory, God will continue to unfold for you the wonder of his grace toward us in Jesus Christ. And we're going to be in eternity going to sit around like, oh my goodness, I never saw that. Oh, what? <laughs> I'm telling you folks. This text says God is the only one that makes life come together in the gospel. It's wisdom. It's how to live life. And he's given it that he might continue to show us how much he's prepared for us, which entails us being connected to the glory of Christ. That's pretty good stuff. Here's the problem. You say, well, Finkbeiner, if, if the truth is right here in the Bible, then all we got to do is share it with people and they'll accept it, right? Uh, wrong. I mean, yes, share it. I'm not saying not share it. Yes, share it, share it. But, but here's the point. The problem is not merely intellectual. Do you realize that? The problem is always a problem of the heart. And so what people need to experience God's wisdom, God must reveal it to us in the person of Jesus Christ on the pages of this book, which he has. But he can only reveal it to us in a way that it changes our lives through the Spirit. Look what he goes on to say here in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Have you ever had somebody say this to you? When I was younger, teachers would say this to me sometimes. Dougie Finkbeiner, I know exactly what you're thinking. No, they didn't. Well, sometimes they did, actually. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. But they, they didn't always know. Okay, let me just tell you that. Sometimes they caught me, and other times they didn't. But you know what I mean? But you've had people do that with you? Like, yeah, come on. This text says, when the Spirit of God does a work in your life, you're getting the very thing from God. 
Because the Spirit, who is the Spirit of God, comes into a person's life, and we often call it, we're, we're illuminated, where, and you know this, if you come to G- faith in Jesus Christ, wasn't there a time in your life where you're just kind of wandering, doing your own thing? You even had people come up and share the Bible with you. You know, like that, that Bible banger over there, you go, I can't believe it, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, but you know, you what people say, right? Like, uh, yeah, I'm a sinner too, <laughs> whatever. I mean, we, we've done all those things. And then one day, it just all clicks. Not intellectually, in the heart. You I believe that. And the Spirit, who knows the depth of what the Father thinks, because it's all part of the Trinity, it's all, it's all together, He comes into our heart and He reveals it to us in such a way that we go, oh, wow. I need that. So the revelation is not merely objective. It has to be that, but it has to be subjective. He goes on to say this in verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. And if you're Jesus Christ, if you know him, you have the spirit that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Because I can't buy it anyway, folks. I don't have enough for any of that. The Spirit comes and opens up my eyes, and I fall down, and I, I ask Christ to be my Lord and Savior, and I begin thinking to myself, look at all the stuff He has freely given me. I don't deserve any of it. My life begins to change. I still go to work, I still go home, I still eat breakfast, still go to school, but I'm different. Because the Spirit takes the Word and convicts me at the very core of my soul, and I respond. Paul goes on to say in verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You know what Paul says? I have been given this not to hoard it, not to keep it to myself, But what I do now is I use every opportunity I can to speak the truth of the gospel into people's lives. Spiritual things to people who are spiritual, people who have the spirit, and they're able to listen and hear and be changed. I've received it. I want other people to receive it. It's wisdom. It's glory. It's free. It's magnificent. And Paul can't hold back. Paul says, however, expect different responses. You can, I'll I'll tell you something that has grieved me through the years. You you probably know this too. And it, it is my concern sometimes for our young people that are with us today. And we are so glad, young people, you're with us. 
one time in my life, I was a young person, believe it or not. And um, over the weekend, I was, had some time with, a, with an old friend, Shuri and I. I shouldn't say an old friend, because it makes me sound like I'm old, but I guess I am. But anyway, and we, we, were, just, we were talking about uh, people that we've known in high school who have walked away from God. Or, or I might say, probably never knew him to start with. It's a better way to say it. And um, it, it, it grieves me to think that we might have some young people that grow up in a Christian family. And young people, you come to a Christian church. And, and, and you hear preaching and teaching and it just goes right over your head. Whatever, 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 whatever. And, and I implore you, don't do that. Listen, God wants to work in your heart with the truth of his word through his spirit so that you can be a person of the spirit. And it would be a tragedy for you to sit here and be with us and walk out of here and never change. It's, it's, a, burden. it's a burden we all carry. Because Paul knows people respond different ways. Look what he says in verse 14. The natural person, it doesn't mean Christians are unnatural. <laughs> it means they're supernaturally indwelt, okay? But the natural person, the person who only lives life as if all that matters is naturally what you see. I, I, I have um, extended family members who want to get in debates sometimes, and they're deeply scientific, and everything is explained naturally to them. You don't need any supernatural. Just all kind of comes together. You can explain every miracle. You can explain everything away. And, and, and I'm just saying, I think that takes a whole lot more faith than trusting Christ. Unbelievable, but people do it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or spiritually evaluated. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Can somebody be lost and go through a creed and explain to you exactly what the church believes about salvation? Absolutely. You... you you know, when, when I do studies and commentaries and all, some of the commentaries that I use are by people who don't even believe in Jesus Christ. They don't believe a thing they're writing about from the Bible. But I'm not using them for that reason. They're really good for background material or I'm using them for grammatical relationships in the Greek and how the syntax is working. So I use them for a variety of reasons. I don't use them for the theology. It is possible to be a natural person who has not been touched by the Spirit, who doesn't have the Spirit within them. It is possible to cognitively understand a creed. But when this text says they don't accept it or don't understand it, the idea there of understand to know is not merely intellectual, it's experiential. They are not able to understand it to the point where they believe it in their soul and it changes the way they live. It's just 
Shakespeare believes this, and Jesus believes that. That's it. And Paul says, you can have the glories and wonders of the gospel. And people that don't have the spirit, it just zips right over their head. Just doesn't connect. And if it does, it's like they say, well, Christianity, you kind of need that if you need crutches. Christians are people who are psychologically weak and frail. You ever hear people say that? I would make the argument that we're all weak and frail. Even the people that don't think they're weak and frail. But see, that's the kind of thing that happens in our world, folks. And Paul says, here is this glorious gospel. And some people who only work at the human level look at it and say, like, nope. I understand it, but now. I cognitively, but now. Look at the other side. Verse 15. On the other end, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be evaluated by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let me explain what that means, because it's really interesting. The spiritual person evaluates all things, but is himself to be evaluated or judged by no one. You know what he says? Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, hey, if you're a Christian, don't let anybody ever critique you or evaluate you. That's not the point at all. It's being contrasted with the natural person. And here's the point. For those that have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've received the Spirit. You don't just read this intellectually anymore. You read it with your soul. Your whole being. Because the Spirit's at work within you. And so, you take the gospel, and the worldview from the scriptures, and you put it on, and you appraise or you evaluate everything from that perspective. And people over here that then evaluate you and say, hey, Finkbeiner, that's really stupid. You say, you may think it's stupid, but it's not. And I'm not going to allow you to shape how I think about that. Does that make sense? It's not about being cocky. It doesn't mean we can't. We can learn from all kinds of people. But it means anything that they say, everything comes through the sieve of the gospel and God's teaching. So it doesn't mean I don't hear them. It just means when what they say goes counter to the gospel, I will always go with the gospel and not with what they say. That's why he says, we, as a Christian, as a, as a person of the Spirit, we can evaluate all things because you know what he says? He quotes and says from the Old Testament, you know this verse that says, who can possibly understand the mind of God? The answer to that is nobody. However... You have the Spirit of God who knows the mind of God and you have the mindset of Christ. You believe the gospel. You believe he's the Savior. You believe that he sets a standard for how we should live. You believe that he's Lord. You believe that he's interceding for you. You believe he's coming back one day. You believe he's going to transform the new heavens and the new earth. You believe all that. 
You have the mindset of Christ. So who has known the, the mind of the Lord by himself? None of us. But God has given us his spirit. He has shown us our blessed Lord so we can think Jesus in everything that we do. See what Paul does? He says, man, the gospel of God is wise and glorious as he unveils it in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised when some people say nay and some people say yes. Because those who say nay, they say nay at the end of the day not because they're smarter, but because they don't have the right glasses on. Ah, but for those of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've been given of the Spirit, and you can see. And all the decisions of my life, you have, we had a fellow just recently who I knew who went in for a normal heart surgery. I don't want to say normal. It was just like for the balloons, some of those kinds of things. Just a typical routine thing. And he died. A godly man. What happens is if all you have are the glasses of the natural person? I'll never see him again. Life is cruel. Fate is all I can live for. If there is a God, I hate him. Am I right? Ah, and others. God, the pain and the sorrow is about more than I could bear. But you are with me. And if I ever question your love, I will turn around and look at the cross and looming larger than life is the God who became a man to die for me when he didn't have to because he loved me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. And I can go into this situation knowing God is for me. And the glory that awaits those that love him is beyond anything that I can possibly imagine. It doesn't make sense to me, God but I know that you're with me. Do, do, do you see? That's wisdom living, folks. It's gospel-saturated wisdom living. It's what God wants for all of us. And it grieves my heart like it grieves your heart when you share it with friends and loved ones and they go like, yeah, whatever. But don't stop. Don't stop. Live it before them. Love them in the name of Christ. Use opportunities to share and let God's Spirit work. And don't be surprised what He does. Don't be surprised. Okay, real quick, sorry. Chapter 3. Just four verses, then I'm out of here. This is Paul's disappointment. Paul's disappointment is the gospel is glorious. People will either respond this way, naturally, or this way because they have the Spirit. Make sense? 
What's the problem with the Corinthians? Where are they on this continuum? Well, are they people of the Spirit? You don't always know quite how to answer that, right? Yes! He'll say in chapter 3, verse 1, look, but I, what? Brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he's not questioning that they're believers. He's just saying, your life is a life that's an oxymoron. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It's if I stand up before you and say, we, we had a restful tragedy. You go, Finkbeiner, you can't put those two words together. And yet Christians live this way all the time. They are people of the Spirit. God has come in. He saved them. He's in the process of transforming them. And what they're doing is they're fighting God's worldview through the gospel. And they keep throwing it down. And they say, could I borrow your glasses over here? And they're going over and borrowing these glasses and coming back. And they're trying to live life like that when they're really over here. And Paul says, you can't. And we often call these individuals carnal Christians. The old King James term for it. But it's an oxymoron. It's not like, oh, there's three kinds of people. There's lost people, there's carnal Christians, and there's spiritual Christians. Yeah, so just figure out where you are. It's not what he's doing at all. He's saying there's two kinds of people. There's lost people, natural. And there's people supernaturally who've been touched by God. And then for some strange reason, you got Christians that are going like this. Here's his argument. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, did you have a world view from the world? Absolutely. You had a whole set of glasses through which you saw life. And you came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he saved you. And Paul says, look, he's, look at what he says in this passage. He recognizes that's where it starts. Look at what he says. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still people of the flesh. And what he's saying is this. When people first come to Jesus Christ, of course they have a worldly view on life. What else do they have? And sanctification is as the gospel takes control of more areas, and you start getting them off of milk, you start putting them on solid food, they go deeper into the gospel. And that doesn't mean intellectually merely. Yeah, it's, it's intellectual too. Because we're to love God with our hearts, mind, soul, right? It's, it's everything. But, but as we grow, we begin going more deeply into the, the, the depths of the gospel and God's love for me. And I can deal with the depths of my sin in a way that I never was able to before. But it's okay because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And all that stuff is going on in my life. And, and I'm, I'm growing. And Paul's grief is not that I started you with milk. He has no problem with that. When you come to faith in Christ, that's where you start people. They've they got all kinds of problems. That's the way it works. Paul's problem is, he says, you're people in the Spirit. It's been several years, and I'm still feeding you 
like your people who have just gotten saved and you're just babies in Christ. Look, if I came in here today, uh, I, I was watching a, a video of my granddaughter. And I often say in that first year, all of life is suckable. Isn't it? I mean, look, honestly, if you give a, a, a six-month-old this, what are they going to do with it? Get right in the mouth, right? And then when they can't do it anymore, or the, the thumb goes in the mouth, right? I mean, that's what they do. What if you were to come in here today and you would say, hey, think about it. She's got this brand new cell phone. Oh, really? Can I see it? Yeah. And I would have taken it and I stuck it in my mouth and started sucking on it. <laughs> I mean, that's okay if you're six months. But if you're in your 50s, that's a bit of a problem. <laughs> Does that make sense? Right? And that's what Paul's saying. Look, here's the glorious gospel. There's lost people. And there's people of the Spirit. And when you get saved, you step out of this, and you're actually over here, and that, positionally in Jesus Christ, and you're beginning to experience the depth of this. And Paul says, but you haven't moved. And you're a fleshly, spiritual person. Now you, like, how do you do that? Aren't we supposed to be moving through that? And we're not talking about perfection, folks. If you're waiting for perfection, you'd have to kill yourself and get it, get it over with, okay? Because we're not going to be. The point of this passage is that we're growing. And we're going deeper into God's truth of the gospel. And it's not about learning facts. It's about in my soul embracing those so that it changes the way I live. Truth is transformative. It is never merely cognitive. Does that make sense? That's why Paul's dis dis disappointed with this bunch. He loves them. And he says, the fact that you're bickering and griping and there's jealousy and there's envy and there's I'm a Paul and I'm a Apollos, all that stuff, that's always indicative. The horizontal relationship between us is always indicative of the reality of the vertical relationship I have with God. Always, always, always. And Paul says, that's why I know that you're still, you're not, you're not lost. You're somewhere in no man's land. And I know that, Paul says, because I'm looking, you guys are really looking at people and saying, hey, certain people are better than others because of their socioeconomic status. Certain people are better than others because of how much they know. Certain people are better than others because how rich they are. Certain, just a whole list of things. It's okay to sleep with a, a local prostitute at the temple because that's what we do in Corinth. That's what you're told. And the gospel comes along and says, no, your body is the temple of the living God and the spirit dwells in you. Who would possibly want to desecrate the temple of God? Do you see what, see what he's doing? It changes everything. It's not a kind of a moralism tit, tit for tat. It's a going deeper into the gospel and being so, so aware of that that it changes the way I live. And I guess my fear is for believers that are with us here today who have just shifted into neutral. Sometimes I hear people say, well, there's normal Christians and then there's radical Christians. You know, normal Christian, you go to church on Sunday, 
Maybe you do a small group, maybe not, whatever. Um, stay with your wife and your kids. That's a good thing. You uh, try to be honest at work. You kind of live your life the way you want, and then on Sunday you come back and do the whole thing all over again. That's normal Christianity. Radical are these people that like go kind of nuts sometimes. They, they go to work and they say, you know, Jesus is wonderful. And be, yeah, but people don't, you know, they're radical because they, they go on mission trips and they sacrifice financially for people and they, they're, they're willing to go anywhere for the cause of Christ. That's radical. Folks, we have it totally backwards. That's normal. That's spirit living. The aberration, the abnormal, the anemic is the carnal Christian. Where are we? I have to tell you, I read this passage. You say, well, you're, you're a pastor, right? So you, no, I read this passage, and I go like, I, I evaluate my own life. Doug, where are you? Are you, are you playing with this stuff? Yeah, I say the right thing, and we sing, I sing, I know a lot. Do I embrace it in my soul? Do I want to go deeper in it? I'm never satisfied, God, until I can know Jesus more. I want to think more of the cross. Help me. I can't even do it on my own. Spirit, work. That should be our prayer every day. And it's a prayer God will answer. If you're here, you can come to Christ. If the Spirit is at work in your life convicting you, don't fight it. If you're here, keep going deeper in the gospel as a mature Christian. If you're here, or here, or somewhere, if you're just a baby, still sucking on cell phones, Would you prayerfully ask God to change you from the inside out? Life is too short, folks. I don't want to play the game. I want to live the life. Father, thank you for a passage which drives us into the very depth of your mind, Lord. For you have designed it from eternity past. You have put it into effect by prophesying about it and picturing it in the Old Testament and bringing it to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we, Lord, we know there's much more awaiting us because of him. Father, I pray. I pray for the 12-year-old here today who's been around Christianity a long time, can quote all the minor prophets, but doesn't know you. In your grace, through your spirit, would you open their eyes? Father, there's a single here with us today who's just playing the game just spinning, frustrated, and not realizing that they're buying into a value system which is not gospel-driven. 
There's a father here, a mother, a husband, a wife. There's young people, there's older people, Lord. For all of us, we beg you to open our eyes and change us from the inside out. That we might know what it means to walk in your wisdom and in your glory and in your wonder. In Christ's name I pray, amen.